Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. We're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. Each episode, we summarize the available evidence, discuss controversial issues, provide practical take-home points with a subject matter expert. I'm your host, Nick Peters, and wherever you are and however you may be listening, thank you. Now, today we are joined by a special guest and friend of the pod, Scott Dietrich. Scott is an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist with the University of Colorado Health based in Fort Collins, Colorado. He completed his PGY-1 residency at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina, and has since been practicing in the emergency department. He was gracious enough to lend his expertise on today's topic, PCCs for PharmDs. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, based off that introduction, it seems like you've spent time on both the East Coast and the West Coast. So which one would you say is your favorite and why? I'm definitely more of a West Coast person growing up a little bit in Florida. I'm just not a big fan of the heat of the South. So now being out in Colorado, the weather's kind of perfect out here. And then we all have all the beer and mountains to uh, keep me busy. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's kind of a perfect lead in here. So I'm sure you've done your fair share of kind of hiking on trails and in mountains. So um, for anyone who is visiting or just kind of wants to know, what would you say are some of your, you know, favorite, you know, hiking trails or um, mountain climbs? Yeah, we have a lot of trails out here. Um, we have 58 like mountains that are called 14 ers which the peaks are above 14,000 feet. Um, those are pretty fun, but they're a really long day. They're pretty hard. Um, so those are usually like a once a year kind of thing, but up near Fort Collins and the Canyon, we have a hike called gray rock. It's like an eight, eight and a half mile loop that goes up to the top of a decent peak. So it's a good one. It's pretty hard. Uh, but since it's only like 25 minutes away, that's probably my favorite one right now. Now, the good thing when you go on like a, a hike or a climb like that is like however many miles you walk, that's how many beers you get to enjoy after. And I know Colorado, there's there's quite a few options. So what what would be your what's like a go to brewery spot of yours? Oh, man, it's so hard because uh, we used to go to New Belgium a lot, but they are apparently selling out right now. So Fort Collins is kind of in an uprage uh, about them not being employee owned and selling out right now. So. Um, so I'm not going to go there. There's a, a little local one down the street called Gilded Goat um, that we go to a lot. They have really good beer there, and the people are super nice. Wow, that's that's kind of breaking news. That's not something that that I had heard. Um, you know, when I think of Colorado, that's that's one of the things that I think of is like fat tires. So that is wow. All right, uh, support support local. I, I yeah. hear you. So today we're focusing on the use of prothrombin complex concentrates or PCCs and their use in anticoagulation reversal. But we haven't always actually been this lucky and had these agents available as treatment options. So how did we reverse anticoagulation pre the advent of PCCs? 
So back in the day, the only oral anticoagulant we had was warfarin. So reversal was just a simple vitamin K plus or minus the addition of FFP, depending on what the scenario was. Now, the kind of the the old adage says, if if it's not broke, don't fix it. So um, the the inherent kind of next question is, there's got to be some limitations with using FFP or or vitamin K. So kind of what are those with you know reversing anticoagulation? Yeah. So once it order it's ordered, it takes a while to actually get to the patient. They have to be matched to blood type, and then since it's frozen, you have to allow time for it to thaw to be able to be administered. Um, there's a risk of volume overload in some patients, and you get the fun acronyms like trolley and TACO. Um, there's infectious concerns. And then overall, once PCC came out and they actually compared them against each other, FFP is just not as good. You don't get as much of an INR reduction effect, and it doesn't last as long as PCC. So you know, nowadays, it's kind of an inferior product. Do you think the intrinsic INR of FFP kind of contributes to the lower effectiveness compared to the four-factor PCCs? So, yeah, when you give, you know, FFP, you get, the more you give, the less actually INR reduction you get. So, you know, if you give a few units, you can get, you know, the INR down a couple points, but the more you give, the decrease you get is even less and less. So you would need just an absurd amount of FFP to actually get someone down to a goal of like 1.4. And that's probably why in the case centrist approval study, they set their INR target at 1.3, knowing beforehand that FFP is probably never going to get there. Yeah. And in hindsight, a really, really smart kind of uh, research endpoint there. Um, so before we talk about kind of where we are now with PCC products, kind of what's a brief history of them? You know, there's a, there's a few that have kind of gone by the wayside now, but you know, what was their initial indication and kind of how did we get to where we are now? Yeah, it all started with a three factor PCC, which had two, nine and 10. Um, it was originally approved for hemophilia B patients, which is a factor nine deficiency. Um, and then they started using an off label for warfarin reversal. Um, the first article we could find um, talking about this was from 1997, and they were using 3PCC, and they were looking at against FFP. So um, they, you know, they they worked better than FFP. Obviously, the groups went that equal at baseline. It was a small study, but you know that's the first one we could find of them doing some off-label PCC for warfarin reversal. And so then, you know, from the three-factor PCC products, then kind of came the four-factor PCC products, right? Yeah, so K-Centra, which is the four PCC we're most commonly seeing, uh, that was approved in 2013. And then there's another four-factor PCC um, called FIBA. And the first study using that for warfarin resource was all the way back in 2005. So that one was being used a little bit before K-Centra even came out. And I think most of the episode, our discussion is going to focus around the four-factor PCC products. Would you say that there's any kind of current utility or role for the three-factor products? So the 2016 intracranial hemorrhage guidelines that were put out by the Neurocritical Care Society and the Society of Critical Care Medicine suggested using four PCC over three PCC. That's mostly due to having better and more evidence with the four-factor products. Um, but in 2017, there was two new studies that came out comparing three-factor and four-factor PCC and actually showed they were equivalent. Um, so there might not be that much of a difference between them, but I know most places aren't even carrying three PCC anymore. So 
um, you know, everyone's probably using four PC at this point anyway. Yeah. That's, that's what my health system's using as well. So I think to make a listening a little easier for everybody, you know, throughout the episode, we'll, we'll be using kind of the brand names throughout. I know, you know, technically um, not preferred, but I think if we, if we kept saying three factor, four factor PCC, I think, you know, not only would, would Scott and I's tongue get, get tied, but I think it would be a little tougher to listen to. Um, so when should we be using just PCC products in general? You know, anyone who is bleeding or, um, just needs reversal of their therapeutic anticoagulation or do we, you know, are there some specific indications? Yeah, I think we have a a big role as pharmacists in factor stewardship to ensure that we're using these things properly. Um, we need to reserve them for life-threatening bleeding events. So someone with a stable GI bleed, although they are bleeding, they're not really a good candidate for this kind of therapy. Um, when you have emergent surgical cases, um, you know, you kind of consider it a life-threatening need. But if it's a non-emergent case, you can always have, you know, the talk with the attending, see when it's scheduled. Maybe you can just, you know, hold the therapy. If it's warfarin, maybe you can just get some vitamin K and that'll kick in by the time they go to the over the next couple of days. So, um, you know, trying to reserve these for life-threatening situations is important. Um, For non-life-threatening situations, if you wanted to try and do FFP instead, that's a potential option because, you know, those delays in time, things like that don't matter as much because it's not life-threatening. Then if you're trying to reverse like a DOAC patient, you know, the only really option we have besides PCC is just waiting. So, you know, if it's an emergency, you're, you're going to be given it. But if it's not an emergency, maybe they have a surgery scheduled for you know an ortho, ortho procedure in the next day or two, you can withhold therapy, uh, maybe not need the PCC. And then, you know, if they do need PCC, you can at least time it to give it before the surgery. So you get that kind of a maximal effect when they're in the OR. I think you make a really great point there and something to, to kind of highlight is that um, sometimes all you need to do is start a discussion. So not being afraid to talk to, you know, the surgeon or the, um, you know, the the team who who is trying to order it just to get an understanding of, of you know, what they're trying to do and, and is this the most appropriate option. Yeah, definitely. Now, much of the conversation that we're going to you know, moving forward that we're going to focus on PCC is going to be for the reversal of anticoagulation. But what is the role of, you know, PCC for non-reversal indications such as, you know, coagulopathy due to trauma or you know, liver cirrhosis? So for cirrhotic patients in our health system, we do just a thousand units of K-Centra, which seems like a good starting point um, if you're not going to use FFP. Interestingly, in September, there was an article published where they were looking at giving FFP to these cirrhotic patients, and they only found one of like that 54 people they actually gave it to had any improvement in their coagulation parameters. So I don't know if that's going to point people in the direction of not using FFP. So we'll see more case center in that indication, but um, we do it sometimes, not as much up here in Fort Collins because we don't have as many liver people as you know down in Denver. But our dose of a thousand units seems like it does a pretty decent job. Now, do you administer that irrespective of if they've gotten um, vitamin K to kind of promote their um, synthesis, like the liver synthesis of their clotting factors? Yeah, I mean, we don't, I haven't done a liver dose of k in the ER in years and years, but, you know, you ICU people are so much smarter, you could probably shed more light. But, you know, I, I think it depends on the goals. If you, 
you know, vitamin K takes four to six hours to even kick in and start doing anything versus, you know, if someone's bleeding in front of you and you want, you know, some action now, I think, you know, you could potentially do both. You could just give the PCC or, you know, again, it depends on what the goals are. Now talk about action now. What about for trauma patients? Yeah. So this is becoming more common. Um, unfortunately, some of the literature out there isn't super helpful. Um, the same group in 2012 and 2014, they were using three-factor PCC and were using 25 units per kilo. Both studies showed decreased blood product administration and faster time to INR correction. So that's good. But then in 2018, there was a study with four-factor PCC. Again, they showed that it was beneficial, faster time to INR correction, things like that. But they didn't report anything about the doses that they were using. So since most institutions don't have three-factor, we have four-factor, we kind of aren't really sure what we should be dosing at. But you know, considering that a unit of FFP has about 250 units of factor nine in it, one to 2,000 units of PCC is like four to six units of FFP. So, you know, somewhere in that one to 2,000 units, maybe 25 units per kilo is probably a good starting dose if you're going to use um, four-factor PCC in trauma. And because when you're, when you're giving it for that kind of indication, it's kind of irrespective of what their INR is. So you kind of need to go at it with a fixed-dose approach kind of. So I think that's a really good, really good advice right there, kind of comparing the units in, in FFP to the PCC products. Yeah, and you're not trying to like completely replace all the FFP in those trauma people. They still need the volume from the FFP. So you're just trying to get some in, get it in quicker, get it working quicker. And then, you you know, the FFP that you're getting later can kind of catch up and fill in the gaps. Yeah, kind of start working right away as, as you know, all of the things you talked about with FFP, kind of the limitations really, um, you wait for those. Yeah. So let's focus on K-Centra, you know, our four-factor PCC product for a minute. I think the the scorching hot research topic here is, you know, weight-based versus fixed-dose K-Centra for warfarin reversal. And for those who may be, you know, less familiar, when when we say weight-based K-Centra, it's referring to the package insert dosing, which is, you know, based on the patient's weight in kilograms and the INR upon presentation. So it varies anywhere from 25 to 50 units per kilo, um, depending on that INR with a weight cap at 100 kilos. So I think the first question here is um, whether or not you use or believe in fixed dose K-Centra, and if yes, kind of what's your standard um, fixed dose K-Centra dosing? So yes, I am a believer in fixed dose, and uh, our starting dose is 1,500 units for everybody. Now, does that you know, you mentioned 1500 units for, for everybody. Does, does the fixed dose amount, you know, ever change? So all of the good literature that's out there right now does not change. Um, however, I actually, in my protocol, we do change. So for patients with a total body weight over hundred kilograms, or if their baseline INR is greater than 7.5, or if they have intracranial hemorrhage, we actually increase the dose to 2000 units. So that body weight comparison is from a study by Klein, um, and they did a post hoc analysis which showed patients greater than 95 kilos were more likely to fail the fixed dose regimen. And then in terms of the INR, Klein, that same, same study also found if people had a baseline INR greater than 10, there was a 10 times higher failure risk. And then in 2012, Corsand, they analyzed their fixed dose protocol and found patients with a baseline INR greater than seven and a half, we're more likely to fail. So to try to mitigate failures in our population, we um, have those two caveats in there now. 
Um, as far as the uh, intracranial hemorrhage dose increase, that wasn't part of my proposal when this was submitted to PNT, but um, the neurology team wanted to mitigate failure, so they wanted to do 2,000 units instead of 1,500. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But for those of us who may, you know, only used weight-based case centro or maybe having a hard time convincing, you know, the ED or ICU teams to start using a fixed-dose approach, what would you say are some advantages to using a, a fixed-dose regimen of case centro Yeah, so, I mean, right off the bat, it's going to save a lot of money. You know, case centro is not cheap. Um, three or four studies now that have come out have shown when they compare cost per patient, it's about $1,000 less. Um, using the fixed dose protocol. The dosing is easier, um, especially if you just do 1,500 units for than having to get a baseline INR and figure out their body weight and things like that. Um, some studies have shown a reduced time to administration as you don't technically have to wait for a baseline INR. If you know they're bleeding and the labs aren't back, you can just go ahead and give a dose. And then the last thing is there's potentially less complications with the lower dosing. So there's a case report in 2016 by Zemrak and they showed for the patients in their system that got a dose between 35 and 50 units per kilo, they had a 15% complication rate. Um, but when they looked at the lower dosing between 15 and 25 units per kilo, they didn't have a single complication. So, um, you know, giving someone 50 units per kilo is definitely going to increase the risk for a you know thromboembolic complication when you're giving someone more in the 20 to 25 range. And I think the, you know, the strategy that you or your protocol, you know, having having specific patients that have a that receive a, a higher fixed dose amount, which is still going to be lower, you know, likely than any of the weight based dose they would have gotten. I think that may help with, you know, adoption or may help you know bring people on the fence, you know, who are on the fence or, um, you know, believers in weight based kind of over to the to the fixed dose side of things now. Yeah. Now, most, if not all, fixed dose protocols kind of give guidance for redosing. Now, when do you redose case centra? Is it based just on repeat INR? Or could it be, you know, radiographic or clinical findings? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of both. I mean, obviously, we have an INR goal we're trying to get to, but um, there are situations where people are not at that INR goal, and you know, we have affected hemostasis, and there's potentially times when someone's at the INR goal. You get a repeat CT, they're still bleeding, you might need to redose again. So, um, you know, I would say it's, it's a combination of both. You can't just use one in isolation and just think everything is fine. Um, but, you know, getting that repeat INR after it's in is very helpful. You know, the doctors are going to be the ones mostly deciding on when they're going to repeat the imaging, if it's, you know, that kind of bleed or not. Now, when do you order that repeat INR? So our protocol has it recommended with six, within 60 minutes after the infusion. Um, anecdotally, I've seen a nurse draw one two minutes after the case intro was in and the INR was down to 1.2, but you know, obviously that's not something we want to happen all the time. Um, so we set ours at 60 minutes, just knowing that, you know, it could be a little bit sooner, it could be a little bit later, but hopefully within, you know, one to two hours after the dose has been given, we'll have an INR result. 
Now, does your management change at all for patients who present with an INR of less than two needing reversal? And I ask this because that weight-based table, it doesn't give any guidance if your INR is less than two. But I think there are scenarios where, you know, many would argue that they are still clinically, you know, therapeutically anticoagulated up to a certain point and need something done. Yeah. So, I mean, my protocol kind of says the same thing for INRs greater than two, you do the fixed dose. So um, it's kind of like an off-label thing that I'll do. So there's one study that was in intracranial hemorrhage patients and they all had an INR less than two. And the authors gave a dose of 15 units per kilo. And they showed that was 95% effective in reaching their target INR of less than 1.5. So if I have someone come in with an intracranial hemorrhage, their INR is 1.9. I'll calculate that 15 unit per kilo dose and then compare it to our fixed dose. And then whatever is less, I'll use that one. Um, if someone's not having an intracranial hemorrhage and they have an IR less than two, kind of like we talked about, this could be a situation where you go and talk to the attendings and see if they even need to be reversed. Um, that might be a situation where you can just, you know, if it's a DOAC rated out, if it's vitamin K, uh, only might be an option. So, you know, it just depends on what the situation is. It's almost like you're creating a best fit line out of those two. That's, that's really great. Now, you know, a lot of people listening may say, okay, you know, I'm hearing a lot of, of what, you know, Scott is, you know, Scott is saying or what he does at, at his health system or maybe what some of the literature says, but what do the guidelines recommend in terms of, you know, reversal of the antithrombotics? Yeah, so those 2016 intracranial hemorrhage guidelines, they recommended weight-based dosing. Um, and then the ACC guidelines recommended weight-based or a f- fixed-dosed option. Um, I like how they give some credit to fixed dosing, but the dose they chose was 1,000 units, which um, I don't really agree with. They said 1,500 for intracranial hemorrhage, 1,000 for any other bleed. But you know from previous literature, 1,000 units um, is not as effective as 1,500 all the more recent studies that are having really good results are using 1,500 units. So um, I would kind of ignore those recommendations and just stick with 1,500 units for everybody. It is nice that it's kind of getting some headlines you know, or um, some face in, in the guidelines. Um, it's just frustrating that it may be setting ourselves up for failure, right, with the doses that they're, that yeah. they're recommending. Potentially. I mean, there's a, there's a, a randomized control study called the proper three that I think is ongoing right now. I think they've started, but they're randomizing people to standard dose or a thousand units for non-intracranial hemorrhage patients. So I mean, when that one comes out, we'll have a better idea if a thousand is good or not, but you know, based on the type of patients we see here in America with, you know, higher total body weights, potentially a higher baseline. IR, I just, I'm not very confident that that study is going to be very positive with a thousand unit dose. Now, up to this point, we've talked about Kcentra and its use for reversal of warfarin. Now, Kcentra is actually FDA approved for the reversal of warfarin. So I, I think there's much less controversy in terms of its actual use for reversal here. But maybe kind of going into some murky waters here and let's discuss FIBA or our four-factor activated PCC product and, and its use for the reversal of DOACs or our direct oral anticoagulants. Um, so before we even kind of get into the details a little bit, how does Kcentra differ from FIBA? Yeah, so both are four-factor PCCs, like we said. They both have factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, um, but all the factors in Kcentra are in inactivated form. And then in 
EBA factor seven is in the activated form and the rest are inactivated. So do these, does that difference, the activated versus inactivated, does that translate into any kind of clinical outcomes or anything that we know of? So clinically, there hasn't been anything showing that one is superior to the other. But um, when you look at the warfarin reversal literature, you can see that that activated factor seven kind of gives it a little bit more potency. Um, you know, the fixed dosing we've been talking about with case Centra is 1,500 to 2,000 units. Um, the FIBA dosing is only 500 to 1,000 units. So you can see with that, you know, it's about half as much dosing. Um, and there's a similar efficacy with, in terms of warfarin reversal. So that little bit of activated factor seven is a little bit more potency in terms of INR reductions. Now, we just spent some time kind of, you know, comparing fixed dose versus weight-based case centra. So we've kind of talked about that general dosing. Um, but in regards to FIBA, what's its kind of general or recommended dosing strategy when it's um, being used to reverse some anticoagulants? So it depends on what you're trying to reverse. Um, there's several studies showing that with warfarin reversal, there's a fixed dose protocol that you can use between 500 and 1,000 units. Um, but if you're doing DOAX, the weight-based dosing at this point is a lot more literature behind it. Okay. So we're going to kind of step into the ring here. So we have we have K-Centra on one side and FIBA on the other. And kind of um, thinking about reversal of DOAX. So kind of starting the discussion with K-Centra, the um, kind of the four-factor PCC product, and then we'll switch over to FIBA. So there's, I think, four studies worth looking at, talking a little bit about with K-Centra and DOAC reversal. First one was in 2017. It's the biggest one so far. There's 84 patients. 70% um, of them had an intracranial hemorrhage. The dosing in the study was 1,500 to 2,000 units, which based on the weights they reported came out to about 25 units per kilo. And then they reported a hemostatic efficacy of 69%. The next year in 2018, Schumann et al., they analyzed 66 patients. Half of them had an intracranial hemorrhage. They gave 2,000 units to everybody. And then based on the weights they reported, again, it's approximately 25 units per kilo. And they showed a nearly identical hemostasis rate of 68%. And then this year we have two studies. The first was by Smith et al. They only had 31 patients. Um, the dosing was 25 units per kilo and 38% of patients. Over half of them got 50 units per kilo, and then um, 35 units per kilo was in the rest. The hemostatic efficacy they reported was 81%. Um, unfortunately, they didn't extrapolate the results based on the 25 versus 50 units per kilo dosing, um, but actually reached out to Melanie Smith on Twitter, and she said that the two failures they had, one of them got 35 units per kilo, and the other one got 50 units per kilo, so the failures weren't necessarily dose-related. And then the last one in 2019, again, by Karen Berger, who you had on for the status episode, they analyzed 22 patients, all of them with intracranial hemorrhages, and all of them got 25 units per kilo. And they were able to assess the hemostatic efficacy in 19 patients and had a 95% efficacy rate based on repeat CTs with no hematoma expansion. So overall, the effectiveness is probably in the 70 to 80% range with the larger studies having lower rates of, or sorry, the larger studies had better or lower rates of efficacy. Um, the smaller ones being 70, maybe into 90% range. So the true efficacy is probably somewhere in, in the middle of those there. Um, but it seems like it works pretty well. Um, 
25 units per kilo would be what I would do um, based on the last study by Karen Berger too. And it's, and it's not just that there's, there's one study with this. You have three, almost like three and a half studies looking at this, you know, median dose of 25 units per kilo for these patients and finding these results, you know, coming together. So that's definitely something you look for. Now the hemostatic efficacy, you know, you're throwing out, you know, numbers of, you know, 68, 69%. So how is, is that a good number? Cause when, when I, when I hear that number, I'm thinking, are we shooting for a hundred percent? Because if so, this is, I'm not sure this is working as well, or am I in kind of interpreting, um, interpreting those numbers incorrectly? No, that's a really good question. And something that comes up a lot when people are, you know, discussing the literature and this efficacy. So, you know, when we do warfarin reversal, the standard dose is not hundred percent effective. That approval study that got case central approved was right around 69 or 72% effective. So, you know, somewhere in the mid seventies is about what we're seeing over and over again in these studies with adequate dosing as in terms of effectiveness. So, um, you know, these studies showing 69, 68%, maybe 80 to 90%, that's, you know, that's good. And it's, you know, similar to what we would see with, you know, other agents. Okay, perfect. And, and of course, appreciate you listening. Appreciate the, the shout out to a uh, previous guest, um, Corinne Berger. She's, she's great. So, we got case intro on one side. Some, you know, all things considered, pretty decent data. And now we have on the other side, kind of FIBA. Yeah. So there's unfortunately a lot less to go off of with FIBA for DOAC reversal. In 2016, there was one study. They had five patients with intracranial hemorrhages, and all got uh, 50 units per kilo. They were able to show 100% of those did not have any hematoma expansion. But again, it's only five patients, so it's a little hard to extrapolate from that. 2017, there was another study, small with 11 patients. They gave everyone 20 units per kilo, um, but they were showing that four of those 11 patients had worsening hematomas on their repeat CT. So their efficacy rate was only 55%. And then this year, the largest one we have so far, Dager et al. had 64 patients. Um, They had two dosing arms. They had a low dose group, which was around 10 units per kilo. And they had a moderate dose group, which was around 25 units per kilo. Of all those 64 patients, only two patients had a worse uh, hematoma expansion on their repeat CT. So their efficacy they found was about 97%. So overall, it's really limited data. It's, you know, less than half the people, patients enrolled that we've had with K-Centra um, there's a lot wider range of dosing. There's a lot wider range of efficacy numbers. Um, so it seems a little unclear whether it works as well or not. And even if it does work, what dose you should probably be doing. But if you do have FIBA, I think a lower dose of like 25 units per kilo is probably a good place to start. So kind of um, tying together what you were saying from both of those, you know, my interpretation of that is that you probably lean towards using K-Centra for DOAC reversal. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, there's just so much more data, more patients, more consistent results with K-Centra than when we have with FIBA. So if I had to choose between the two, I would definitely go with K-Centra. Now let's kind of switch gears just a little bit and, you know, talk about K-Centra versus FIBA for warfarin reversal. Um, I believe kind of you specifically have a little bit of experience kind of looking into this question. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, Sean Rose, a pharmacist up at the University of Tennessee, we did a uh, 
study with standard dose Kacentra versus fixed dose FIBA, where their hospital was using the FIBA. My hospital was doing the Kacentra, and we compared them together. Um, we didn't find any differences in uh, the ability to reach a post-BCC INR goal of less than 1.4. And there's a small study. There were some appropriate criticisms that were, you know, as an editorial in critical care medicine. But um, the results we found mirror the results seen in other studies in terms of efficacy. Um, so jumping off that, we did another study that we called PCC WAR, and that was fixed-dosed K-Centra versus standard-dosed K-Centra versus fixed-dosed FIBA. And we had six hospitals, two um, for each arm, and we got a, a total of 167 patients enrolled. We're still looking, looking at the data a little bit, but last year we presented a poster at ACCP, and originally it looked like the fixed-dose K-Centra was the best in terms of efficacy with about 76%, while the um, standard dose or the standard dose looked, was the most effective. The fixed-dose K-Centra and fixed-dose FIBA were only about 55% effective. When you start looking at the uh, baseline numbers between the two, the standard dose case center group had an INR of 3.4, and FIBA was at 4.2, and the fixed dose case center group was at 4.78, which is significantly higher. So that's probably why we found a difference um, between the two arms in terms of efficacy, but we're trying to, you know, do some regressions and take things into consideration, and, um, you know, hopefully by the spring we'll have something to publish on this. I'm looking really, really forward to um, seeing that because this is this is great. And then the, I have to ask. I'm such a sucker for study names. PCC War. That is that's one of the best. And is that is that something that that you created? Because it seems like whenever I create presentations, sometimes I spend more time trying to think of the great title than I do the actual presentation itself. Yeah, I wish I could take credit for that one, but that one's Sean's. Um, so he just came up with that off. I don't know why, like, you know, three or four months after we were already into this, he's like, I had a great idea for the title. And we're actually doing another project with a uh, reversal survey. And he came up with the name of Aries for that. So he's hmm. uh, a title making machine. Oh, this is great. And so now we know if, if anyone's stuck with um, trying to find a, a really good you know, research title or acronym, we know who to reach out to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, now, should pharmacists or other kind of critical care practitioners be fighting to have both Kcentra and FIBA on hospital formularies, do you think? Yeah, I don't think that there's enough data out there to show that one is, you know, definitely superior to the other. Um, in terms of warfarin reversal, they're probably equivalent. In terms of DOAC reversal, the K-Centra might be a little more effective. So, you know, if you came from the standpoint of having just one agent to use for everything, maybe you could give a slight nod to K-Centra because there's better, better data with DOAC reversal. But um, for the most part, I think if you have one, you you have some studies to support your use of it there. I agree with what you're saying about kind of K-Centra just having more more data to, to support its use. Now, it also has more just literature in general for fixed dosing um, when, it's, when it's being used as a reversal agent. Now, do you commonly use a weight-based or a fixed dose approach when you're using FIBA? Because I've, I've heard you kind of describe both. Yeah, so... 
Um, you know, all the literature so far with the DOAX is, you know, weight-based dosing. Um, but it varies very significantly between 10 and 50 units per kilo. So if you are going with off the literature, what you're doing is probably in the 10 or 20, 25 unit per kilo range. But um, I have heard of some people who are FIBA hospitals that use FIBA for warfarin that they just do about 1500 units for their DOAC reversals. But there's not very much literature to back that up at this point. And I think it's really hard to kind of talk about PCCs without discussing the extremely expensive and brand new elephant in the room, which is Indexa or Indexin A alpha, kind of the reversal agent for the the factor 10A inhibitors. Now, I think we could definitely have a entire episode just kind of breaking down Indexa itself. But I think one thing that might be fun fun to do kind of in in this PCC episode is kind of almost do like a, like a pros and cons list, kind of like a little old school. So what would you say would be some, some pros or, or positives for the use of, of Indexa? So it's the only quote agent specific DOAC reversal agent we have out there. So, you know, Indexa likes to say that they're that over and over. Um, but otherwise, you know, when the drug is infusing, there's a very high degree of drug binding. When you look at those, the NEXA A and the NEXA R studies, when they actually give it, the anti level levels fall dramatically very quickly. Um, so, you know, it, it works very rapidly when it's given and it's, you know, specific for 10A. So those are some of the pros. Now let's kind of go to the other side and kind of talk about some cons. So, you know, in my opinion, there's a, a lot, there's a, you know, lack of outcome data with the NEXA 4. Um, they had a lot of exclusions in that study. So, you know, the people we're reversing on a daily basis don't match up that well with people that were enrolled in an XF4. Um, you know, I was talking about how rapidly it works, but the kinetics wise, it doesn't look that great. As soon as they stopped infusing the drug, the anti levels like rise very, very rapidly and the patient's back to their baseline in about an hour to two hours. So um, that's kind of concerning to me. And then obviously, you know, a lot of people talk about the cost of $58,000 per dose, which is, you know, not a good thing. Do we have any evidence to suggest that that we could or maybe even should be using PCC agents rather than Indexa? Yeah, I mean, in, in my opinion, there's enough studies out there. We have enough patients, enough consistency with the results that I think that, you know, Kcentra is as good, if potentially not better, than Indexa for DOAC reversal. Do you think, you know, you you highlighted um, some some of your just general concerns, but I think, you know, one question that really weighs on, I think, especially a lot of the administrators' minds is, you know, do you think we'd be using Indexa more if not for the cost? Because I think rightfully so, that's getting a lot of the headlines. Yeah, we, you know, we might be if it was the same cost as, you know, case center would be people would be using it more, but, you know, I keep coming back to the kinetics. So, you know, I dare you Cizumab, which is the reversal agent for Pradaxa is another similar drug that got a lot of flack when it was approved because it was no comparator in this study. But that drug completely and irreversibly binds drabigatran, and the binding affinity is like 350 times that of the active site. So once the drug binds to um, dabigatran, it gets completely eliminated versus Anexa, you give this two-hour infusion. Two hours later, the patient's back to their baseline anti-10A level, like they didn't even get it. So, you know, I just need to see more like long-term outcomes of does this actually work? Are you just 
reversing someone for two hours and then they go back to being where they were if they didn't even get it. And then interestingly, an article just came out in Neurocritical Care in October that kind of highlighted that the FDA clinical reviewers originally voted to not approve Anexa. As they said, the safety and efficacy data were not adequate to support its approval, but um, the director for the Office of Tissues and Advanced Therapies overruled those reviewers and got it approved with the caveat that an RCT um, had to be performed. So I'm sure Portola is going to take their time with that study, but um, you know we'll see what happens when that finally comes out. I I believe you wholeheartedly that that will we will be waiting <laughs> waiting for a little bit. It'll be like the stress ulcer prophylaxis guidelines. Um, yeah. But but you highlighted a really really great paper um, for anybody who may be you know tasked with bringing this to PNT or you're on the committee or you just want to know more. But it's it was published in Neurocritical Care and it's called Key Points to Consider When Evaluating Indexa for Formulary Addition. So um, that along with you know all the other studies that we've kind of been talking about are going to be on the show reference list. So I encourage everyone to read because it, you know, I, until I you know, read this article, I didn't realize that about the, um, the FDA approval and all that. So kind of eye-opening in, in a certain sense. Now, hypothetically, and I'm of course not wishing this, I am profusely knocking on wood here. Um, but if you were you know, receiving, say, Eliquis or Zarelto and you had a life-threatening bleed, you know, which reversal agent would you want to receive? So at this point, I'm going with Kcentra at 25 units per kilo, based again on the, you know, efficacy numbers we've seen, cost savings associated with it compared to Anexa. Um, That's what I would recommend for a patient in my ER. So that's what I would go with for myself. Put your money where your mouth is. We yeah, definitely right. appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Now, do you all have um, Indexa on your formulary? Yeah, we don't have it at our hospital. The main hospital in Denver has used it a few times, but they're the only one in all of Colorado that I think that has used it. So I don't have very much experience with it. You know, our my health system it has it on formulary. We have. Um, Fairly strict restriction criteria, you know, limiting it to just intracranial hemorrhages. Um, they had to have, you know, had their last dose within 18 hours, kind of similar to the approval study. Um, and a couple of things that we have we have encountered, you know, we've used it, I think, on two or three patients since it's been approved, is that um, A, compounding it in a timely fashion can be very challenging because I know they're kind of moving away from the 100 milligram vials, but you know they have 100 and 200 milligram vial options for basically a fixed dosing strategy. And so it's, I don't know if anyone's ever, you know, compounded like dantrolene in your um, emergency kits, but it's like you have eight to 16 vials that you're reconstituting. It's not very easy to get into solution. So that was one encounter. And the second is that when you look at the administration instructions, you're supposed to give start the maintenance infusion within two minutes after the bolus is done. Now you work you work in the ED, right? so tell me in a busy day how possible you or how likely it is without you being right there that that's going to get started within two minutes. You would have to have all of the stars aligned and four nurses in the room to have that probably happen. And then, you know, you bring in, you bring up those kinetics concerns, you know, all of that is kind of alarming because that type of error, uh, instead of a two minute gap, it's a 10 minute gap. 
that could be something that no one would ever know about, right? Because it's just the the normal time course of being in the hospital and the meds. So that is those were frustrating things for one thing that we did. I know some people put the, the, the bolus and the infusion in the same bag and just infuse it that way. And what we do is we prime two smart pumps. Um, and then once they, they, the bolus runs out, they flush it with saline and then they kind of start the other one, um, up right away. So not, not a perfect solution by any means, but something that, um, kind of works for, for what we were able to do. Now, what would you say is the role of pharmacists here? You know, how can pharmacists kind of help with safe and effective use of some of these PCC agents? So we touched on that earlier, but, you know, factor stewardship is a, a big role we can play. Um, you know, these things are expensive. They're not without risk. So um, pharmacists are on the front lines of ensuring that we're only using them in appropriate cases, which is a life-threatening bleeding event. Um, situations in which are not indicated like a stable GI bleed or surgery in the future, you know, have that discussion with the attendings and maybe you can wait or even skip the dose. Um, you know, the surgical patients find out when the surgery is scheduled. So we're trying to reverse a DOAC, you know, you don't want to give the case intra and then have surgery six or eight hours later. Um, if you want to give it right before surgery, so it's maximally effective, you know, if they're having their surgery in a day or two, maybe you can just hold the therapy and, you know, by the time they reach surgery, they'll be fine. Um, you know, another facet is to ensure the correct dose is ordered. So we want to avoid overdosing as we know that, um, we might increase the risk of thromboembolic events, but also it's very costly. So if you're overdosing someone, you're wasting more money. And then we want to assure make sure we're not underdosing someone. So we don't want to increase the risk of failure because we didn't give them enough dose. Um, among the patients with warfarin reversal, you got to make sure the vitamin K is ordered. That gets admitted a lot. You know, everyone's knee jerk reaction just to order the K center and they forget that vitamin K. And if that one's not on board, you're going to have a rebound INR in six to eight hours. So, you know, it's a very easy intervention for pharmacists to make. Um, and then again, in those warfarin patients, we really want to make sure that we have a repeat INR ordered to assess for its efficacy. You don't want to give a dose at noon and not have an idea if their INR is reversed until AM labs the next day. So that's an easy intervention again for the pharmacist to make. I want to highlight something that you said about the vitamin K. I think that's really important just based on the kinetics you've talked about. Now, is this, do we need to be giving this um, for anybody who needs reversed or just somebody who um, needs to be reversed due to bleeding? I mean, if you're going to reverse someone with K-Centra, they need to get vitamin K, in my opinion. So, you know, the vitamin K starts working in about six hours. The K-Centra is going to start wearing off in about four to six hours. And if you want their INR to be down for more than six hours, you, you know, you got to give them both together. Perfect. So, Scott, you gave us tons and tons of information to kind of dive into and chew on later. But if you had to create kind of like a, a cheap cheat sheet or kind of a list of take-home points for us, what would some of those be? So for warfarin patients, I like fixed dose. Um, if you want more detailed information on that, I have a post on EM Farm D that kind of goes through my protocol, the literature behind it, and, you know, some more rationale of why we do that. Um, Right now, the dose for everybody should be 1,500 units. You can consider, consider increasing that for certain populations like I do. But, you know, as of right now, there's three good studies out there showing um, good effectiveness with 1,500 units. Um, our health system is currently reviewing our 
fix those protocols. We'll have a year's worth of pre and post data that the stats guys apparently working on right now. So hopefully we'll be able to find out if those subtle dose increases are worth it or not. Um, and then in regards to FIBA for warfarin reversal, you know, when you're comparing to K-Centra, there's no obvious winner at this point. So whatever your institution uses is fine. Just remember, if you're giving one, you have to give it with vitamin K. In terms of DOAC reversal, I think K-Centra seems like a better option than FIBA at this point. There's more data, more consistent data with it. Um, so I would go with that over FIBA. If you have a Nexa, you're probably going to be using that. But again, K-Centra seems to be pretty effective so far in the retrospective studies. Um, and I know we all want to see more data with the Nexa. And we definitely want to see that head-to-head -head comparison to determine if that $58,000 price tag is worth it. And then the last thing, you know, us as pharmacists, we're on the front lines of factor stewardship. We play a big role in making sure these therapies are used appropriately and effectively. Um, you know, K-Centra, Viva, it's expensive. They're not without risk. So we want to make sure we're only giving them when they're actually needed. And when we do need them, make sure that the correct dose is ordered. Kind of a, something to reemphasize is factor stewardship. You know, pharmacists getting involved on protocols and committees to really um, not only uh, help the patients that they're actively rounding and seeing, but even some of the patients that they're that they're not. So really, really awesome point, Scott. I, I appreciate it. And we are we're recording this actually on the week of Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, you know, to you, Scott, and to the listeners. So if you had to pick, if you had to pick your favorite side for Thanksgiving, I know we like to do the questions at the beginning, but this one just popped in my mind. What would you say your your favorite is? I, I, I think it's going to be mashed potatoes and gravy, but stuffing's a, a close second too. That is, all right, we're on the same team there. This is, this is right, a mashed good. potatoes and gravy <laughs> podcast. So we are, we're, uh, we're on the same side there. Scott, this was great. Really, really enjoyed gaining some insight, kind of discussing all things related to PCC. So appreciate the uh, time, effort, and energy. Now, where can the listeners find you? Are you active on any social media sites at all? So I'm on Twitter, so you can find me under my handle at PCC underscore FarmD. Um, you can follow me or send me messages, but um, that's the best place probably. I'm not on Facebook or anything like that. So Twitter is where it's at. So obviously based on his, um, your Twitter handle and the title of this episode, come to you for all things PCC <laughs> related. <laughs> um, now there's a lot of people out there who know more than me too. Um well, another huge thanks to to Scott Dietrich for taking the time to join us today. I uh, also want to give a massive thank you to you, the listeners. You know, this podcast doesn't exist without you, and we greatly appreciate you in this time of giving thanks and thanksgiving. So please send me feedback, both positive and negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas via Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose. That's T O to dose, um, or via email at pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. On our website, pharmacy to dose.com, you'll find the show notes that include background reading, guidelines, articles referenced in the discussion, um, the post that Scott mentioned from uh, EM PharmD that'll be referenced on there as well, and so much more. Honestly, I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. So until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.